Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm your host, Juliana Hever. Dr. Dean Scherzai is a behavioral neurologist and neuroscientist whose entire life has been dedicated to behavioral change models at the community and population level. His vision has always been to revolutionize healthcare by empowering communities to take control of their own health. Dr. Aisha Scherzai is a vascular neurologist and a research scientist. Knowing the importance of empowering her patients and their communities, she completed an extensive culinary training program in New York and now teaches large populations how to make tasty, healthy meals for their brain health. Together, they are the authors of two best-selling books, The Alzheimer's Solution and The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, and they are currently leading the largest community-based brain health initiative in the country. Listen in on how these two brilliant doctors choose themselves. Doctors Dean and Aisha Scherzai, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. You start your amazing book, The Alzheimer's Solution, stating that if you would have told us 15 years ago that we'd be writing the first book about the only scientifically proven solution to the international epidemic of Alzheimer's disease, we never would have believed you. I concur with what I was taught in grad school myself and in my clinical experience. So can you just tell us about your journey towards this very bold, amazing proclamation? Yeah, I mean, uh, we what we were talking about there, Juliana, is about our, what you know the journey we had with our grandparents decades ago. Um, back then, we didn't know what what was happening, we didn't know why it was happening, and we also didn't know that that would be the impetus, the the seed, the nidus for the rest of our what we did for the rest of our life. And and as uh, some people might have heard, we, we that's how we met Aisha and I in a conversation thousands of miles away, sitting around a table around the story of our grandparents and how these brilliant, brilliant people just uh, succumbed to the devastating disease that is Alzheimer's and um, the, the bigger category of dementia. It's just, it was just devastating. And, and now we know that much of that, not all, but much of, of uh, the, that suffering, many of those cases can be prevented um, and it can be prevented not with some biohack or some some trick or some tool, but 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 with simple lifestyle measures that are profoundly powerful. Yet uh, the general population is uh, not privy to it. So Alzheimer's is the sixth <clears throat> leading cause of disease. Can you explain about the processes of dementia versus Alzheimer's? Yes. Yeah, so. Dementia is the umbrella category, um, and its definition is when people have difficulty with their cognition to the point where they can't do their activities of daily living, you know, such as driving and financing. Um, Juliana, I'm sorry, there's the gardeners in the background. Do you hear that? Is that an interruption? I'll ask Adam if he hears it. I don't hear it. Okay, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> okay. a lot for me on my side. I was uh, making sure. All right, I'll just go ahead and start the answer again. Dementia is the umbrella category, and it essentially is defined as a condition where people have difficulty with their memory and cognition to the point where they can't take care of themselves and of their activities anymore. You know, they have difficulty driving, taking care of their finances and other normal activities around the house and in their in their society. Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. There are other types of dementia as well, such as vascular dementia, Parkinson's dementia, Lewy body dementia, 
frontotemporal lobe dementia, and all of them have different pathophysiologies and they have um, differences as far as their presentation is concerned. But at the end, when it gets to the advanced point, they almost always look the same where people have um, difficulty with their cognition, with their language, with problem solving, etc. And as far as the term dementia and Alzheimer's being interchanged, it's because Alzheimer's is the main type of dementia. 60 to 70% of all dementias are Alzheimer's disease. And they usually start with symptoms of memory impairment, and it kind of advances with involvement of other um, you know, aspects of cognition. So tell us about your neuroplan. Yeah, so so the NeuroPlan is the product of what came out of the researchers looking at the data um, and, and the research we did, looking at what elements truly affect cognition or cognitive health the most. And um, it, we've done many, many studies, uh, uh, big, large studies of what California teachers study, average health study, and others. And the five main things that kept coming back over and over again it was nutrition, exercise, and movement stress management, sleep or restorative sleep, and then mental activity and, and, um, and uh, social activity. And within nutrition, we also included alcohol and cigarette smoking, its consumption. So with that, we came up with the self-serving acronym NEURO, which is N-E-U-R-O, N for nutrition, E for exercise, R U for unwind or stress management, and R for restorative sleep and O for optimizing mental and social activity. Those five components are profoundly powerful. In fact, in a disease where we don't have a drug that reduces risk by even 1%, even you know, none of the drugs actually reduce risk, what has been found is that nutrition by itself has tremendous effect on reducing risk. And Aisha will speak to that and exercise, same thing in all of these. So we have remarkable tools that can maintain your brain health and brain capacity, not just ma- maintain it, but help you grow it well into your 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. I love I love the way you break this down in the book, and it's so comprehensive. And I love how it always comes down to the same things, right? These is, this is like, you know, I wrote the health span solution. This is the Alzheimer's solution. And amazingly, our diet is so profoundly powerful and exercise. And I, I love your the whole neuro idea. I, I really think that you have this really cool a spectrum in the book. That's the NeuroPlan Nutrition Spectrum. And it talks about, I, I recommend everyone read this book, by the way, obviously, but there's that spectrum of foods that are beneficial and then neutral and then harmful. And I just found it so interesting. I was really kind of been studying it and looking at it. And most of it is like stuff you would you would think, you know, like kale is number one, kale and berries, of course. But I, I found a couple of things that were interesting that I was a little surprised about, like that sugar and the sugar-based products were more harmful than processed meats, fast foods, fried foods. And coconut is neutral. Those are just kind of interesting things. And I'm curious about that from a cognition perspective, a brain health perspective. Yeah. I mean, as scientists, we're very uncomfortable with bombast and absolutes, right? Um, things change. Even putting a spectrum, uh, we, we, in fact, in our second book, The 30, Alz- 30 Day Alzheimer's Solution, if you read that, look at that spectrum, at the top, there's a writing. <laughs> it is so verbose. And 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 uh, and it actually speaks to how science works, uh, which is making sure that data changes 
and the data is not looked upon and myopic in a very you know linear way. It, it, and if we had to write it in a in a whole paragraph, it would have been nobody would have bought the book. But, but we still have to, yeah, we still have to stand by the science that data changes and data should be taken into consideration in the bigger perspective of health. So with that, this is a, a snapshot in history. In fact, uh, it, it is a snapshot in healthcare. And and with that snapshot. Even that should be taken into consideration within within with a grain of salt, not as far as validity, but the weight. Um, I shall read the uh, the paragraph that we wrote yeah, about just, the, uh, this table. Yeah, uh, and I think that it, it's a, it's a good idea to read it so people understand that this is not just an opinion and that science changes and we are going to change with the data. Uh, we wrote, this spectrum represents our extrapolation of the current research on nutrition and brain health. For us, it is not just about reflecting the science, but also speaking to the weight and the context of the science. This food spectrum can serve as a useful tool, but it is in no way perfectly representative of the complexity of nutrition science. So take it for what it is, a general guide open to change with new data or more complex interpretations. And, and the importance of this is that as scientists, you can we can always you know, analyze to paralysis, right? Um, uh, we want to make sure that we didn't become paralyzed and we wanted to write a book that actually speaks to things that stand out. I mean, really stand out. And some of the data is overwhelming, but even there, we have to say that the weight will change over time. For example, greens. The, the weight of the data on greens is just bewildering. I mean, it's just <laughs> bewildering. I mean, if, if there was one public health activity that I would do uh, if I had to implement nationally or globally, just eat two servings of greens a day. That would be massive. Mm -hmm. But the number changes over time. And so the reason I'm saying this is that, uh, you know, these variables of today, we did a podcast of our own on, on our Brain Health Revolution podcast about a, a ketogenic diet. And we dived, we dove into the, into the science. And even at the end, we said, this is where the data is now, and we should always reflect on it and see how it changes over time. So I love that aspect um, of science that you actually take on as well, and some of the friends that we have, which is making sure that we approach this scientifically. And, and uh, that's, that's, uh, we hope that that's what we did in our book. A million percent. And I love that you're emphasizing that, that things change, but we're, we have to look at the preponderance of data. But by the way, now that you're talking about keto, I'd love to get a little summary of what you said in your podcast today, because <laughs> everyone's always asking about that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so it's complicated. So ketogenic diet has been studied for, for a very, very long time. It actually started back in the 1920s um, as a treatment for a particular type of epilepsy or seizures in children who were intractable for medication only. So children who were on three or four different types of seizure medications, and they had a specific syndrome, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. It's a type of epilepsy. Um, you know, they actually tended to do better when they were placed on a high-fat, low-carbohydrate, low-protein diet, which essentially um, put them in ketosis, um, which essentially says that they started creating ketone bodies in their, in their body, and that was used as the primary source of fuel for their brain cells. And so their epilepsy tended to get better. There was not as frequent. That was applied to multiple other brain diseases as well. And that's why we have this conversation about ketogenic diet and its protective nature for Alzheimer's disease. But when you look at the diet, there is no strong evidence, no long-term and large population evidence that ketogenic diet 
is protective, which means that it, you know, essentially reverses some of the de- damage that we see in mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease, or, you know, the data is not really strong enough to show that there's improvement in symptoms. So that's the general gestalt of, of the episode. We, we really want to make sure that people don't jump ahead of the science. We're we don't have a, a, a horse in this race, but we don't believe in horse race <laughs> anyway. But <laughs> yeah, we, we should time get... to find another. Yeah, we gotta find another. No. <laughs> yeah, but nonetheless, um, uh, you, we've jumped way ahead of the game here, uh, the, and and the reason is um, because the, in order to uh, speak to something at the population level, which is public health, it it must ha- show long-term benefit as well as just short-term. Short-term, anything can work short-term. I mean, that's why all these mouse studies, these poor mice, by the hundreds of thousands have been killed. Yeah, and and they all work, but when it applied to humans, none of them translated when it comes to uh, the the Alzheimer's and dementia and other diseases because the lifespan of a mouse is two years. And in perspective, it's considered, you know, short-term and that never applies to humans. So- and when it comes to ketogenic diet, we have no data long-term, meaningful data long-term uh, that, that has shown benefit. And then the second component is, uh, uh, we say validity and utility. Is this useful? Meaning that in this perspective, is can this be applied to populations? Can I tell, you know, where I came from, Pittsburgh, the population of Pittsburgh, for the rest of your life, you're going to be on keto diet. We have never been able to maintain that in any population mm-hmm. and to the point that actually ketosis is maintained in their blood. By the way, majority of studies that actually do ketogenic diet, when they looked at their blood, they weren't even able to maintain the ketosis. So that's why we're actually jumping ahead. We should study it more. But at this point, we have. And then the third element, and this is the most important, when you have incredible evidence of other alternative treatments, you know, plant-based plant-centered, even plant-forward diets that have shown just put the diet alone, 53% to more or more, in our case, percent of benefit. Why would you jump to a hypothetical, theoretical thing? That's, that's the whole problem with this. I have so many questions for you guys about so many different things. And I'm trying to like, I'm going to pivot a little bit here. Tell us a little bit about our magnificent brain. And, you know, you talk about the different sections. I've heard you do so many different talks about things like that and how they influence specifically our habits. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, the brain is just remarkable. It's 87 billion neurons, one quadrillion potential connections, potential connections. Somebody did the mathematics as far as this power, one times 10 to the 50th processing power. That's stronger than any supercomputer right now, although that one, that number, I'm a little incredulous about how they came out, but it is incredible power. <clears throat> By the way, majority of that cognitive capacity is subconscious and automatic or habit. People say 40% of your behavior is habits. I say 99% of your behavior is habits. And, and so, but still, it's an incredible machine. And this little three pound organ, 2% of your body's weight consumes up to 25% or more of your energy. There's a reason for that. In fact, it's so powerful and so important that we have evolved into a system where we are knocked out for eight hours, no protection, paralyzed, so that the brain can rest and restore. That's remarkable. It just tells you the the importance and power of this brain. 
So it, it is that's that's what we're working with, and that's who we are. You know, well, you can replace the heart, but you're still the same person. You can replace the kidney, you're still you replace the brain. Guess what? You're the next the, that other person. <laughs> so so the brain is remarkably powerful, and its power comes ironically in its automatic function. The better we've created positive behaviors, I'm a behavioral neurologist. My passion for the last 20 years has been behavior and writing a book and, and how to make habits. How do we truly take control of our habits? Once we do habits efficiently and automatic behaviors efficiently, we've completely changed our, our power, our power structure, because this brain can, can basically do anything it wants once it has an efficient system, an efficient software uh, programmed within it. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about establishing new habits? I, I too, am big into like small habits and making them automatic by just repeat, repeat, repeat. But like, what do you have like a process? How do you recommend to your patients? What do you talk? You talk about this in your book and on social media. I'm just curious if you could just kind of elaborate on that a little bit, please. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is this is Dean's passion, and I'm happy that we've had the opportunity of working outside of a lab and outside of just you know crunching numbers and data. One of the reasons why we're so excited and so passionate about working in translating all this information in communities is just that, because you see the variability of how that manifests, the the theory manifests in real people in real situations. And, you know, we could go on for hours, but um, at, at the baseline, at the bottom line, you see that you really have to meet people where they are, um, starting with identifying their resources and their limitations and where they are in that journey. And Juliana, you, you probably have discovered this as well, and you've experienced this working with so many people too. Everybody wants to be healthy. You know, we all want to have a happy, healthy life, and we all want to age well, and we all want to be around our loved ones and things that matter to us. Nobody really wants to be sick and diseased and decrepit when they, you know, hit their 60s or 70s. But, you know, getting there is is something that is very vague. And at its core, I think it's all about, um, you know, setting goals, setting smart goals for them to be very specific, measurable, attainable, relevant to that ultimate goal and time bound. You know, we are big believers of smart goals. And that is a crucial way of addressing habit change, because instead of focusing on an outcome, instead of having a vague outcome like I'm going to be healthy or I'm going to eat better, you actually work on developing very strong processes and systems like a machine. And oiling that machine will finally determine that that very outcome. And in many ways, from a neuroscientific perspective, when you work on oiling that machine, you know, just using that analogy or, you know, creating a very strong system and a process, you build pathways in the brain where the brain doesn't have to spend a lot of energy for things to happen. It almost becomes like an autopilot mode. You know, the brain is a very, very active organ. It's, it's very small. It's about, you know, yeah, it, it, it consumes a lot of energy. So when you create those pathways, you actually spend less energy and it becomes an automatic behavior. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's remarkable how powerful it can be. But the, the, as Aisha said it beautifully, the systems are critical. The systems are, are, are um, uh, important to create because if we don't do that, 
what we're doing is actually causing more pain. But if we create the systems, we take control of the, the two neurotransmitters, which are very popular in, 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 in public right now, the dopamine and the serotonin. I call the dopamine the little tugbo tugboats that actually change direction in small, minimal um, uh, uh, actions. And the serotonin, which is the ship of emotion, the baseline ship of emotion, it's the little tugs that actually change the direction of that ship. Talk more about that. I, I heard you say, Dean, that you hate, I want to write a book on the words motivation and moderation. Yes. Can oh you talk goodness. a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, so I, I don't like the idea of just throwing words at people. And, and so that we're, there's a lot of talking heads that throw words and they look good and they have millions of followers, but we don't really give people the power. It's a critical that we give people the power and, and you give people the power by giving them the systems that they can own themselves. Um, moder motivation is not a useful word. What is that? I mean, I, I throw the word motivation at you. And how can you bring it to use on a daily basis? Let's say that you feel a little down, you feel a little sad, which we all, value, you know, this, this ebb and flow, this up and down is there for all of us. But how is the word mo motivation going to help you? It doesn't have a denominator to, to, to work against. There's not a quantifiable thing. There's not even a behavior. It's just a word. And what, what, what it does actually, ultimately, if it's, somebody says it to you enough, you feel demotivated. You actually, without saying so, sometimes you, without even knowing so, you feel like as if you're an unmotivated, lazy person. And you're not. Nobody is. I call this the, the lottery phenomenon. If there's... A, if somebody tells you that there's a billion dollar or, or world changing or hunger eliminating behavior four steps away, and all you have to do is take step one, two, three, and four, wouldn't everybody do it? Everybody would. The reason that people don't is because, first of all, the steps are not clear, the outcome is not clear, the rewards are not clear, the, all of that stuff. Instead of word, be, just be motivated to change the world. Nope. Here's the goal. Identify your goal. And by the way, even that final goal, that final purpose in life should be readdressed every once in a while because you change over time. And this changed person is not the same person you were five years ago, two years ago even. I mean, I, I'm just looking at myself and I've lived you know, more than 50 years. I'm not the same person two years ago. So you have to readdress your purpose in the new context. You break it down into goals, systems, and then you create measurable changes that you check off. That's where you control the dopamine. And that's powerful instead of a meaningless word that like motivation. The other word that's terrible is moderation. There are a lot of words out there like moderation, words that don't have a meaning, don't have a measure. What is moderation? I used When I used to grow up, when I, when I was in Pittsburgh growing up, I used to eat meat seven times a day. I mean, including brief jerky and all that. I played sports, I, you know, soccer, tennis, football, all that. And so what is moderation to me? Six times? Five times? How is that any better in the long term? <clears throat> or a more blunt version of moderation is, what if you're having a canister, a, a one liter canister of uh, a cyanide a day? What's moderation? Half a canister? No, moderation means nothing. It means on what you are truly aiming for, and the degree or the denominator of change, or actually a numerator in this case. So, so instead of moderation, make it quantifiable changes that you can achieve. And it has a direction that they keep accumulating towards a bigger and bigger and bigger outcome. Uh, those two words are disempowering. And, and one thing, 
Look for other words in your life that are not measurable, that, that, that you really can't pull in to a activity, to a behavior, to an emotion. Um, uh, and if they're there, get rid of them and replace them with meaningful, measurable words. Like willpower, right? Willpower. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah. Willpower. And everybody feels bad. Like, oh, I'm, I don't have willpower. You know, our kids are pretty motivated and you might have heard about them. They're pretty motivated. But my son the other day, he comes to me and, and he's like, I, you know, maybe I don't have willpower. I'm like, are you kidding? What does that mean? You're measuring yourself against what? Willpower is useless. You're doing great. Here's where you are. Here's where you want to be tomorrow or the next week. It's measurable, it's achievable, and you feel good about doing it. But so, so let's get rid of those words. Yes. Cheers to that. I love that so much. Not a lot of people are talking about that. And people just feel like they're broken and there's something wrong with them because they're not achieving the goals that they want to achieve. But I agree, just put the system in place and then, and then just reinforce it. So that's a whole different way of looking at it. When I was 17, my mom was on a bike. She had a bike accident right in front of me and she had a brain injury in her temporal lobe. And, you know, and she couldn't talk. She couldn't, you know, use her words and because, you know, all the different parts of the brain affect different parts of your everything. Yeah. And um, she used Scrabble and like all these other word games and other cognitive exercise to kind of rehab her brain. And um, what do you think about word games and all of that in terms of just taking care of your brain and aging well? Word games are great. Um, any activity that challenges your language centers and your calculation centers are amazing. Um, so, you know, when it comes to the spectrum of different activities, um, it, anything that is closer to real life activities where, you know, you're, uh, you're kind of made to do multiple things together. It's, it's, those are much better than activities that singularly activate one part of the brain, you know, but, but th that, that doesn't mean that it's bad. Um, it just means that there is, uh, almost a kind of a synergy between activities that tend to do um, or, or make them more neuroprotective compared to singular activities. So say, for example, if someone likes doing Scrabble, that's phenomenal. You know, it forces you to remember, it forces you to use vocabulary, it forces you to be creative, and it also challenges your visual spatial centers. But uh, if it's something like, you know, playing Scrabble with friends, then you're having a conversation, you're listening, you're looking at their emotions, you're, uh, you know, you're doing multiple different things together. Um, when you look at the data, it, it, it shows that when people do several things together, um, uh, you know, the, the term dual task is used. Uh, dual tasks mean, you know, you activate one part of the brain and then another part of the brain. Those tend to be much better than uh, activities that have only one singular focus. Uh, beautiful. I mean, one example of, let's say somebody has a stroke and uh, their language centers are affected. Reading vocabulary, doing Scrabble is definitely good. But, you know, being part of a book club depends on the level of the stroke and all that. But let's say that even if you're passively part of the book club, you're actually learning language, you're re learning the reading component and socially interacting, which is a very important part of uh, um, vascular diseases. The emotions are affected profoundly in a lot of these. So that's a more complex language involvement. It's not just language, it's social aspects of language. It's cognitive aspects of language. It's visual aspects of language. It's emotional aspects of language. That's going to 
build connections at multiple levels exponentially. That's why real life complex behaviors are uh, to some extent better. Aisha, I've been watching your cooking demos on your Instagram and I have my mouth waters looking at your recipes. You seem to just have so much love for cooking. I'm just curious about what you guys would typically eat your family eats in a day. Well, thank you so much. My mouth waters when I look at your books and your recipes. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I um, The typical foods are, you know, so we have our base recipes that we make uh, on a regular basis. And then when we have time over the weekends, our kids are now teenagers, so we don't see them around. <laughs> They're very busy. But say, for example, on the weekends, we just try different recipes together. Um, it, it, it's, it's, um, we've come to, down to a system where we know that the core things that we eat should be prepared. And Dean and I spent three hours in the weekend going shopping, chopping vegetables and creating our staples like quinoa, a pot of beans, some brown rice, cut up some greens and make them ready and wash them and keep them in the uh, refrigerator, you know, chop some veggies and roast them like sweet potatoes, onions, bell peppers, mushrooms, and things of that nature. And then during the weekday, it's, it's a basically a mix and match, right? So you kind of, you know, either we make a stir fry with a really nice sweet and spicy sauce, or, you know, we put them together in a burrito, or we basically toss them in in a big bowl of salad. But I think 90% of the time, we have these enormous bowls. At the base, we have greens, and then a kind of a whole grain. So it's either quinoa, barley, or uh, brown rice. And then on top of it, we have some plant-based protein. It could be black beans, pinto beans, um, roasted uh, tofu with some spices. We eat a lot of tempeh as well. And then on top of it, we have some chopped veggies. Usually it's either sweet potatoes, bell peppers, and then depending on the season, it could be asparagus or any other vegetable. And then sauces, like I'm big on sauces. I think if your sauce is good, you could probably eat a piece of cardboard with it. So we make, <laughs> so we make you know, an almond chipotle sauce, or we make like a cashew, um, you know, ranch dressing or um, you know, like a peanut butter, a sweet and spicy Thai kind of a sauce. And we just have these in like mason jars in the refrigerator and we just pour it on top. And then we always put some seeds, either some sunflower seeds or, um, you know, some uh, maybe some walnuts. And I make this walnut Parmesan from nutritional yeast, garlic powder and walnuts and just kind of sprinkle on it to give it a crunch. And, you know, that kind of meets our needs of complex carbohydrates, uh, proteins, especially now because Alex, my 17-year-old son, is building muscle and he's going to the gym and Dean and I go to the gym as well. So we want to make sure that we have enough complex carbohydrates and protein as well and the greens and the veggies and the micronutrients that come from it and the good fats from the seeds and the dressing, I, you know, that makes it a complete meal. So those right. are the, it. but then, you know, on the weekends we make a plant-based pizza, or for example, we make a really nice lasagna, or we make spring rolls, something that is a little labor intensive and all of us are involved in it. And it's so beautiful to have everybody in the kitchen involved because food is not food, as you know, Juliana, it's about, you know, connection. It's about love. It's about, uh, being together. It's about creating beautiful memories. And so we, we want to make sure that we spend time doing that. And I definitely concur with uh, Aisha. Your your recipes are absolutely amazing as yeah. well. So we've seen it. It's beautiful and, and, and amazing. And and Aisha um, has really developed this, this, this one thing that I think she takes pride in, and I, I don't want to speak for you, is the ability to sense people's tendencies and proclivities and kind of build a palette 
around that. And that's important. Uh, when it comes to public health, where we we just uh, started this, well, actually, we didn't. We've been doing this for a while through our Healthy Minds Initiative, which is a nonprofit, in the communities. We we go to the communities and we don't just impose our our the way we eat or the way we said this is the optimal whole food plant based, but where people are is where they should be. And one of the things we do is we actually work with the chefs of that community and help them develop a new you know, palette around the foods that the community is familiar with. We just won the National Academy of Medicine Award, which is the most prestigious award for research at the community level. Just the, the two of us, which is, uh, we're kind of proud of that. And, and the main crux of it is we go to the communities and build around the community's strengths, proclivities, culture, background, everything. That's called community-based participatory research. And Aisha has developed this particular talent in knowing what people's palates and, t- and, and texture proclivities are and building around that. And that's so important that, that you and Aisha and all these amazing uh, uh, you know, chefs um, or public health uh, uh, professionals uh, are doing, which is understanding that people come to this journey you know, from their own background, and we have to respect that. So, love your work for that, and 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 uh, yeah. Well, thank you, and congratulations. So grateful to get to talk to you and to know you. Oh my goodness, uh, the the feeling is mutual, Juliana. Absolutely. Thank you for everything you've done, and we love you. Love you guys. I love the idea that 99% of your behavior is based on habits. We can change our habits, put systems in place, and it will change everything. If you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, become a member of our Patreon page, patreon.com slash choose you now. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash choose you now to have access to exclusive content, including the Shurzai's love story in this episode. Please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with questions and comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.